This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast. Episode 280, The Fall of Sumatra. Even before the conquest of Singapore was over, on February 15th, the Japanese were already making plans for their next target, Sumatra, just off the southern coast of the Malayan Peninsula, the largest island of the Dutch East Indies, occupied by the Dutch in 1800. When the Japanese invaded, there were some 2.3 million people on the main island and the smaller islands around it. There were 6,000 Dutch and other Europeans, 140,000 Chinese, and 13,000 other Asians. And unlike the other islands in the area, like Borneo, Sumatra had a well-developed road system. Palembang in the southern half was the largest city, and thus its acting capital. The island was known for its abundance in rubber, coffee, tea, tobacco, palm products, and hemp. And, of course, there's the oil fields. The largest was near Palembang. In fact, it was the largest known oil field in Southeast Asia. Another was on Sabang Island, just off the northwest coast, with the last one being at Pankalong Brandanon, at the northwest corner of Sumatra. Two of the refineries for this oil were at Palembang, the Peugeot refinery just south of town and the Songhai refinery just to its east. And as the Musi River was how the oil was transported out of the area, the river exited to the north of Palembang, it was assumed by the Dutch that these waterways would be used by the Japanese should they come to take the refineries intact. Just to the west of Palembang proper was the Pangkalong Bentong Airfield, or P-1, as the Allied pilots knew it, and it was known by the Japanese, hence would be factored into any attack. Normally servicing oil executives, the airstrip was expected to play a large role in the island's defense, as the Dutch, British, and Australian pilots prepared for battle. And indeed, the Japanese were preparing to occupy the island, or rather, its southern half, first, as their initial targets were there. 
Their main goal was to take the airfield west of the city and the two refineries. As for the Pengkalong Betong airfield, that would be critical when it came time to take the rest of the island and then invade Java to the east. As defending Sumatra was a priority for the Dutch, it received the second largest number of KNIL soldiers, about 4,500, commanded by Major General Roloff Overaker. Overaker divided his men into seven garrison battalions that were spread out over the island, but of course Palembang was the priority for both sides. As such, the Dutch kept about 2,000 troops nearby, with one machine gun company, one anti-aircraft battery, and four artillery batteries, all making up the South Sumatra Territorial Command under KNIL Lieutenant Colonel L.N.W. Volazong. More specifically, one infantry company with five armored cars was placed in Palembang proper, with another infantry company at Dejambi, 150 miles northwest of Palembang. Hence, the west and eastern approaches to the city were covered, should the Japanese try to come one of these ways. In January of 42, with the Malayan battle not going well, Abdu Command decided to concentrate its air force in the area at Palembang, at the Pengkalang Batong, or P-1, airfield, as it was known to the RAF. However, P-2, the other and relatively new airfield, at Prabo Molith, about 55 miles or 88 kilometers southwest of P-1, set in a natural clearing, had yet to be discovered by the would-be invaders. It wouldn't be long after this decision, in January 42, before Abdu Command decided to place all bombers at P-2 due to their longer range and leave P-1 for the fighters so they would be further north, thus quickening their response time. Operating from P-2, the RAF activated number 225 Bomber Group, which had two Australian RAAF squadrons mixed in with British pilots. Comprising 225 Bomber Group were 40 Bristol Blemen Light Bombers and 35 Lockheed Light Hudson Bombers. As for number 226 Fighter Group, recently arrived at P-1 in early February, it had two squadrons of Hawker Hurricanes, about 50 in total, delivered by the carrier HMS Indomitable. This force was augmented by the remains of the RAF and RAAF fighters from Malaya and Singapore, made up of Brewster Buffaloes and other Hurricanes. These men already had the measure of their Japanese counterparts in recent air battles and knew their chances were limited. Skill is important, but numbers tell. Fortunately for the pilots of the fighters and the bombers, some 2,250 air service personnel were brought over from Singapore just before that island fell. As for the defense of the fighters at P-1 when they were on the ground, that was the responsibility of Wing Commander Harold Maguire. Under him were 110 KNIL Dutch regulars and two armored cars. Yet this force was augmented by 72 air crewmen and their three officers, who had lost their pilots 
or planes during the Battle of Singapore. Rounding out the ground defense force were two anti-aircraft guns. As for help in controlling the Musi River, that could lead the enemy right to their doorstep from the north coast. Nearby was the mine layer Propatria and the patrol boats P-38 and P-40 of the Royal Netherlands Navy. Again, like the pilots and their planes, the numbers here were not on the Allies' side. But in war, you play the hand you are dealt. For the Japanese, as all their priorities were on the southern half of Sumatra, that was where they would focus first. Indeed, if things went well, any uncaptured enemy troops would head north to safety and thus remove themselves for the Japanese while the southern end was consolidated. The rest could be mopped up afterward. It was the job of the Imperial Japanese Navy Western Force, led by Vice Admiral Jisaburu Uzawa on his flagship Chokai, a heavy cruiser, to escort the infantry safely. This attack, like many of the others covered so far, would be covered by the Japanese Southern Expeditionary Fleet. As for the troops going on land, it would mostly be men of the Imperial Japanese Army 229th Infantry Regiment and an additional battalion from the 230th, a force of about 3,000 troops. Both units came from the 38th Division, which had helped subdue Hong Kong and they would use that experience to go after Sumatra. The 38th Divisional Commander, Lieutenant General Sano Todayoshi, would be in charge of the ground attack, but also playing a part, perhaps a sizable part in this invasion, if things went right, were some 350 paratroopers of the Imperial Japanese Army 2nd Paratroop Raiding Regiment, these men would be commanded by Colonel Seichi Kumi. The idea was that, for the most part, as the paratroopers had made a big difference on January 11th in taking the northeast corner of the Celebes, these paratroopers would land behind southern Sumatra's coastal defenses on February 14th, two days before the amphibious landing was to take place. At the very least, the paratroopers could cause mayhem. At best, if total surprise was achieved, they could take the airfield and hold the refineries until the larger amphibious force arrived. Of course, the last piece of the puzzle was to take all the above, still undamaged by the Dutch defenders. This was a bold, daring plan with high risks, but higher rewards. The problem was, the coming attackers still do not know about that second airfield that now housed the island's bombers. So, as things stood, the paratroopers would go in first, followed by the initial force of the 229th Infantry Regiment, ferried by eight transport ships that would leave from Camron Bay, Indochina. This force of two battalions was ordered to take Bangka Island, just off the northeast coast of Sumatra, and Palembang on the island proper. Only then would the main attack force of the 229th and 230th regiments land on Sumatra for any mopping up that was needed. At most, that was expected to be nothing more than a push to the south and northwest. But again, that second airfield 
when the main invasion force came, it would be escorted by the heavy cruiser Chokai, Ozawa's flagship, four more heavy cruisers, ten destroyers, and minesweepers. And providing air cover would be the aircraft carrier Rujo and the Imperial Japanese Army's 3rd Air Group. The Allied pilots were only expecting land-based enemy planes, so it seems the defenders were not the only one who had a surprise in store for the enemy. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, and like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity, and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. On February 6th at 11 a.m., the first major air raid of the IJA 3rd Air Group hit Palembang. There had been other raids previously, as Singapore was becoming overwhelmed. Each side had scored successes, but now the numbers of these were growing, something the defenders could not afford. That raid and the others that day bagged for the Japanese two Bristol Blemons, two hurricanes, with two more left unaccounted for, and two Buffalo Brewsters were destroyed on the ground. These more intense raids went on for two more days. At the end of the third day, the Japanese pilots had reported destroying 69 Allied planes in all, either in dogfights or while on the ground. With such numbers, the Japanese commanders decided, on February 9th, that February 15th, would be the day to land troops on Sumatra. Knowing it would take a few days to get into position for the landings, on February 9th, the day the invasion had been set, at 7 p.m. the first convoy left French Indochina, carrying the initial landing force. The first escort group, commanded by Rear Admiral Hashimoto, consisted of his flagship, the light cruiser Sendai, four destroyers, five minesweepers, two sub-chasers, and eight transport ships. The next day, February 10th, at 6 p.m., the second escort group also left Cameron Bay. Vice Admiral Ozawa was in command, with his flagship, the cruiser Chokai, and helping escort the 14 transport ships carrying the main landing force were four heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, five destroyers, two minesweepers, and one sub-chaser. But if the invaders were hoping to reach Sumatra unseen, that hope evaporated on February 13th when a British reconnaissance plane spotted the first escort group in between Borneo and the southern end of the Malayan Peninsula, 
just north of Singapore. Unfortunately for the Allies, at that same time, several of their transports had just left Singapore with British and Australian troops who were making for Sumatra themselves. The two groups of ships came within close range of each other, and at the time, the Allied ships were being attacked by Japanese fighters. Taking damage, the Allied vessels made for a small, uninhabited island just north of Bangka Island, itself just north of the southern end of Sumatra. Had those troops been able to reach Palembang, their numbers could have made a difference in the crucial stage of defending P-1 and the oil refineries. As the Japanese had lost the element of surprise, it was decided to try to reclaim that with the already planned airborne attack. If the ships of the first escort group had yet to reach land, then perhaps the IJA paratroopers could surprise the defenders. So, on February 14th, the day before the initial troops were to land, at 8.30 a.m., 18 Mitsubishi KI-57 transport planes left southern Malaya with 180 paratroopers of the 1st Paratroop Drop Unit and another 18 Kawasaki KI-56 transport planes left a different airfield in the same area carrying 120 paratroopers of the 2nd and 3rd Drop Units. Further up the Malayan coast, the 4th Parachute Drop Unit of 40 soldiers took off as well. This force of paratroopers, altogether, was being led by Colonel Kumi. The various transport planes were being covered by a large group of Nakajima KI-43 fighters. At 11 a.m. that same day, February 14th, the air raid sirens around Palembang erupted. Sadly, the fighters, normally at P-1, were out, covering Allied convoys, nor could they be reached by radio. With the skies over Palembang undefended, a wave of Japanese bombers flew over and hit the airstrip. Then the fighters escorting the transport planes flew over and strafed the buildings around the airfield. Then came the airborne transports. 240 Japanese troops were dropped over the area. They were not harassed as they floated down. Their job was to take control of the P-1 airfield, while a separate group of 100 men landed closer to the oil refineries, located to the southeast of the airfield and on the other side of the Musi River. Their job was to take and hold those positions before they could be wrecked by the Dutch. Thus far, the invaders' plans were coming off as hoped. The paratroopers, now on the airfield, caught the defenders off guard. Right away, the Japanese engaged the Allied defenders, turning over cars to use as protection. Wing Commander Harold Maguire, in charge of defending the airfield, gathered his KNIL regulars, his RAF crews, his anti-aircraft guns, and they laid into the attackers. By staying calm and wisely using his men, Maguire was able to push back the Japanese. But as there was a battle raging over the airstrip, it was decided right away to send all aircraft to the P-2 airfield to the southwest. As for the two refineries, the Japanese did manage to use surprise to take the Plajou refinery further south 
and remove most of the detonation charges. Yet, as that fighting took time, the Dutch were able to set off explosives at the Songhai refinery. Yet the initial success of the Japanese at the Paju refinery was short-lived. Other KNIL troops rushing up from P2 managed to push the invaders out of the area. Ironically, all this fighting did not give the Dutch time to destroy the still-viable refinery, nor was the Songhai refinery completely destroyed. Still, the defenders did manage to set the oil stores ablaze. The next day, February 15th, the Japanese paratroopers, who had been fighting through the night, were reinforced in the form of 100 more paratroopers. As the Allies had already taken many casualties due to the surprise approach of the enemy, these additional troops were enough to overpower and occupy the defenders of Palembang Town proper by that afternoon, located to the east of the airfield and north of the refineries. But by this point, the Japanese were also worried over their situation. First, the Sungai refinery had been damaged. The Plageau refinery had been liberated by the enemy. And those paratroopers responsible for taking them had already suffered close to 80% casualties. Still, the Japanese had gotten past the entrance of the rivers as they had parachuted down and now were in the midst of P-1. Not a bad start, considering the main attack was still to come. While the 100-man reinforcements had been floating down to relieve their comrades, the first escort group had entered the Bangkok Strait on the northern coast of southern Sumatra and was about to make land. Some of the men were put on shore at Bangka Island, just across from Sumatra, on the north side, and they took the town of Bentonk and a small airfield there by 8.30 a.m. There were some Dutch troops on the island, but being so few in number, they offered no resistance. As for Sumatra proper, the various Japanese landing units, now on landing barges, started sailing up the three main rivers, from left to right, the Talang, Musi, and Salong rivers, located just north of Palembang. A Lockheed Hudson Light Bomber left P-2 and flew north. Passing over Palembang, it wasn't long before the bomber crew radioed back, reporting a large number of enemy ships and the Bangkok Strait. In response to this, despite the morning fog, a large group of planes left P-2, to take out as many enemy ships, including landing barges, as they could. This was the decisive moment. Either the invasion was going to be stopped here, or it was not. 22 Hurricanes, 35 Bristol Blemons, and a few Lockheed Hudsons took off from P-2. There was another bomber, but as the fog limited visibility, it clipped the top of some of the trees at the edge of the forest and had to crash land. As for the Allied planes that made it, they engaged the enemy ships, but were themselves quickly engaged by Zeros from the nearby carrier Rujo. The Allied bombers attacked the ships. The Japanese fighters attacked the Allied bombers. The Allied fighters chased after the enemy fighters. It was complete mayhem. Still, 
enough bombers had struck true, which caused the deaths of hundreds of Japanese soldiers and sailors. Still, the invasion continued. In the melee, one Japanese transport was sunk, as were 20 landing craft still in the strait. But what had to give the Allies the most hope was when some of their hurricanes went after the landing barges heading upriver. During this air attack on the Japanese ships, one of their reconnaissance planes spotted an ABDA naval force of one heavy cruiser, four light cruisers, and ten destroyers, of which six were American, all led by Rear Admiral Carl Dorman. They were sailing west, in between Borneo and Java, and thus heading for southeastern Sumatra. The plan for them was to head up the Gaspar Strait on the east side of Bangka Island. Their objective had been, per Abda Commander Wavell, to intercept the Japanese force, but that was already attacking Sumatra. This Abda fleet sailed just north of Bangka Island, but was spotted by the Japanese. Its surface fleet prepared to engage, as it was already spread out to protect the transports from different directions. In the afternoon of February 15th, aircraft from the Japanese carrier Rujo, as well as land-based fighters from Kuching in southern Malaya, went after the Allied fleet. Dorman had little choice but to turn south. He and his could not withstand a combined air and surface attack. They headed back through the Gasper Strait and sailed east. With the Allied ships driven off, the main transport fleet moved closer to the entrance of the river systems of southern Sumatra. The next day, February 16th, in the afternoon, they started moving upriver. Though the first invading group lost many men to the hurricanes, the second group was able to land, and their overwhelming numbers decided the issue. The remaining defenders set fire to or destroyed the petroleum facilities and stores of rubber. Also, any Allied shipping was to be destroyed as to not fall into enemy hands. Only then were all of the defenders of P-1 to retreat to the south, not to the southwest, towards the P-2 airfield. In fact, they were to head all the way to Uthsaven, near the lowest point of Sumatra, in the southeast corner. The plan, per Wavell, was to disembark his men from there to fight another day. In fact, Wavell had already been planning for this. There were only a few small ships in the harbor at Uthsaven, but they would have to do. Also on February 15th, all aircraft were ordered to head for Java after their attack missions were completed. As for Palembang, it and the surrounding territory were taken by the Japanese, who landed men at 7 p.m. on February 15th. Their comrades, the paratroopers, were relieved. During the afternoon of February 16th, as a large Japanese scouting force was sent out from Palembang, only then did the invaders discover P-2. As it was abandoned, the new owners of southern Sumatra took possession of it as well. But their task was not yet complete. The next day, February 17th, Japanese units were sent further afield to search for enemy troops or positions. 
And as they knew their time was limited, Allied ships hurried to evacuate 1,900 British troops, 2,500 RAF service personnel, 700 Dutch troops, and 1,000 civilian refugees that same day, February 17th. Taking them to Java were 12 ships, but the Australian corvette Bernie stayed close to Uthshaven to cover their departure. Only when the port city was bereft of Allied troops and civilians did the Bernie fire on the port's facilities and oil tanks. With the Allies gone for the southern half, by February 24th, the Japanese controlled southern Sumatra. Right away, Japanese planes were stationed at P-2 to launch attacks against Java, their next target. Of course, on the northern half of Sumatra, there were still some 1,350 Dutch troops and a smaller force of paramilitary policemen. They were joined by those Dutch troops from Palembang that could not or did not head south. As for the local troops, the Malayan ethnics, they deserted en masse, having no love for the Dutch, even including those in the north that had not yet seen fighting. It wasn't long before the Japanese engineers had the oil refineries up and running, contributing to the empire's war effort. Even before the northern half of Sumatra was secured, the 16th Japanese Army, the force that would invade Java, was brought down from French Indochina. At this point, ABDA Commander Archibald Wavell recommended that his command not be transferred, but dissolved, because it was time for the Dutch to take command of the defense of their remaining possessions. Now, no commander plans for failure. Still, the best the Dutch could do at this point was to hope to hold on to the northern half of the island, then somehow push the enemy out of Palembang, then off of the island altogether. The problem was, the few Dutch defenders left, besides being spread out, and led by KNIL Major General Roloff Overacre, had no planes to assist them, nor any naval units that were on the way. The 12 ships that had evacuated those on the southern half were now at Java, and not likely to come back. Then there was simply the overwhelming force that was about to visit Overacre and his men. First, the Japanese pushed out, and by February 24th, controlled territory 30 miles southwest of Palembang. Next, they gathered numerous ships to surround the northern half of Sumatra. This allowed them not only to deny the landing of any Dutch reinforcements, but would also allow the Japanese to land anywhere on the northern half they so chose. But, as bad as things were going to be for the Dutch defenders, the quick victory over Java a battle that lasted from February 28th to March 12th, allowed the Japanese, as the Java campaign was coming to a close, to focus much more manpower than originally supposed. The multi-pronged attack on northern Sumatra, in the form of at least three fleets, each with its own group of transports, packed with infantry, left Singapore on March 9th. On the morning of March 12th, in quick succession, unopposed landings were made at Sabang Island, 
just off the northern tip of Sumatra, at 2.35 a.m., then at modern-day Banda Aceh on the north coast at 3.30 a.m., then at Ida, a little more than halfway up between Palembang and the northern coast at 5.40 a.m., and in another area nearby that was located to help the other landings should they require it. They did not. Near the landing at Banda Aceh, KNIL Colonel G.F.V. Gosenson and his men offered no resistance, as it would have been suicide. The major city, Medan, was taken that day, again a little more than halfway up the northern section. But worse still for the Dutch, troops from the Japanese 38th Infantry Division had already moved up from Palembang to meet up with their forces further north. With this done, the roads and all the major towns now belong to the Japanese. As there would be no help or reinforcements, KNIL Major General Roloff Overaker, the overall Dutch commander of Sumatra, surrendered on March 28, 1942, with 2,000 men. They had been trapped about 75 miles due east of Madan with enemy forces all around them. 